Today's podcast is brought to you by Blue Canary. The bird has landed on beautiful Bainbridge Island, conveniently located at 499 Madison Avenue. ASE Master Technician Clint Ramsey brings over 15 years of experience, award-winning diagnostic skill, and a desire to reinvent the automotive repair experience. Schedule an appointment online at bluecanary.biz or call them today at 206 206- Four five one four two two zero. Hey, it's Michael Fabiano here from SI.com, and I'm excited about the upcoming launch of the SI Fantasy Podcast. Myself, along with Dr. Roto and the Fantasy Executive, will get you ready for your fantasy drafts in 2020 and guide you to fantasy football glory. Get on board with the SI Fantasy Podcast and win your fantasy football league. This segment of the Bystander Podcast is brought to you by Eagle Harbor Insurance. We don't sell insurance, we help people buy it. This has always been their motto and continues. They understand every family has different insurance needs, be it coverage or premiums. No two cases are the same, and they will always do their best to guide you into the proper coverage to fit your budget. They are here to help anytime. Give them a call at 206 206- 842-7410 or contact them online at eagleharborinsurance.com. I'm Maria Metzler, the Executive Director of Helpline House. The global pandemic has affected us all differently. If you or your neighbors need food assistance, mental health counseling, rental assistance, or parks and rec vouchers, please reach out. Helpline House can help in many ways. Find us on the web at helplinehouse.org. It's what we do. Neighbor helping neighbor. The Bystander Podcast, in partnership with Bainbridge Strong and the island's own Pegasus Coffee Company, is proud to offer this special release whole bean blend for a limited time. A medium dark roast of coffees from Colombia, Ethiopia, and Sumatra. It offers a balanced, full-bodied cup, perfect for virtually any pairing or occasion. $5 from the sale of each 12-ounce bag will go to Bainbridge-based small business or nonprofit of your choice at checkout. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. I got something for your mind. Body and soul. You have found the Bystander Podcast. Now here's your host with the most, Tiny Tim. All right, what's cracking, Podcast Phil? You found the Bystander Podcast podcast please put your hands together and welcome back joel underwood how you doing joel how you doing man i've been i've been watching a lot of debates so i'm a little um, i'm a little punch drunk but i'm all right yeah and um i like how you've been cryptic you've been saving it for the show i was losing my mind last night i was definitely losing my mind what has it been a week or two weeks since the presidential debate 
It's been a, been a week. So the, the presidential debate was last week. The uh, vice presidential debate was last night as we taped this. And then, because I do this for your audience, because I'm a giver, I then stayed on and I watched the gubernatorial debates as well. I watched Inslee versus Culp uh, and, and took some notes as, as well, which, which, by the way, was, was one of the only of the three that I've seen in the last week that I would actually call a debate uh, everything. Well, we can talk about what was wrong with the others, but, but, you know, I, I watched the, the governor as well. It's pretty, pretty interesting. Yeah. And for whatever reason, that was under my radar that it was uh, a couple of days off, not last night as well. Poor, mm-hmm. poor timing on their behalf, I think. But, uh, I was reminded this morning with an email from Jay asking for more money. Oh, really? Oh, yes, okay. Uh, we got to yeah. keep Mr. Culp down and, uh, I'll need more mo- money to do that. And I was like, I didn't see the debate last night, but I think he's... The numbers do not say that he needs your money, but that's okay. We can talk about that. Uh, No, I don't have any money. It's COVID season. (laughs) Well, there you go. That brings me to let everybody know we're coming from the Zoom tomb, so uh, shit can get hectic and freeze any second. But uh, let's try to go back a whole week in uh, time, which seems like an eternity and just uh, review the presidential spat. I took the low road, I went lower road. Um, that was the presidential debate. Well, and by the way, as, as people are, whenever people are listening to this, you know, the situation is changing. Uh, Rapidly. Uh, it feels like moment to moment. Uh, I would argue in, in very possible, uh, possible, reason because of the president's steroid use because of COVID. One of the things that those steroids can do is they can make you indecisive. They can give you mood swings. So he decides that he's going to do one thing one moment and he can absolutely change his mind and decide he wants to do exactly the opposite thing as we've seen with the stimulus package. But this morning as, or this afternoon, I guess, as we, as we record this, the president has nixed the next debate. He has said he will not do the next one. So this may be the one that we got last week, may be the only one that we get. Uh, he has said that he is not interested in doing a Zoom or, well, I'm sure they wouldn't use Zoom, a, a uh, what, in separate locations debate. He is not interested in being in separate locales. He is not interested in the moderators having control of his microphone and being able to turn him off. His, his exact quote was, oh, and they can cut your mic whenever they want. You, this is ridiculous. I'm not going to do this. And, and I felt this quote was really telling. He said, that's not what's debate, what debate's all about. So my question is, what in his mind is debate all about? Because what I watched last week was nothing that I would give credit for in my classroom Nothing that I would have. I have had high school freshmen try to debate that way, cutting people off. Yeah, I've seen I've seen high school freshman kids try to debate that way, and I have stopped them, and I have told them, "You can't go out and represent our team doing that. You can't go out and represent me doing that. That is not that's not moving the issue forward at all. That's not teaching anybody how problems get solved. That that's just being a bully." And, and yet that is what he does. I, I will say this. The one time I've ever seen somebody else try to debate like that at a tournament, we used to go down and I would take the, the, my debate teams down to uh, the University of California at Berkeley 
about once a year, they had a tournament usually around President's Day weekend. And it was one of the largest tournaments in the United States. And not only was it in the United States, it would attract debaters from other countries, from schools from other countries. And the kids from the schools in China would come in and they would debate and I would judge rounds. And almost universally, those kids would debate like that. They would, they, they, they would do it, cut people off and they would be aggressive and they would be demeaning and they would be sarcastic and, and very, very difficult. And, and, but the, the, the weird thing was my, my guys would talk to them after the rounds and they were the nicest dudes in the world. And we're like, what, what do you do? You were just a jerk in this round and you're obviously a cool guy. We're sitting here eating a Big Mac. What's going on? And they said, we are taught to debate like that. We are taught that debate is dominance, that debate is steamrolling, that there is a winner and a loser, and you're either steamrolling or you're getting steamrolled. I'm paraphrasing, of course, but that's the only other people I've ever encountered that think that that is anything you could call debate. Yeah, I think another one of his worries was Joe would be fed words or would have a teleprompter in front of him or an earpiece to make him sound more intelligent than he really is. But I, I think the big thing comes down to he wants to have things his way, just kind of like the plexiglass last night of protection between Kamala Harris and Mike Pence was kind of theatrical. Um, and it was a minimal protection type thing, but it is also a, a show of dominance or asking outside the lines for something and getting it. Uh, would you agree with that statement? Well, I think you've got to, when, when you're Donald Trump, when you're any debater, but, but when you're Donald Trump especially, you have to play to your strengths. There's a lot of different, first thing, you know, the first day of class in debate is there's a hundred different ways to be good. Find your way. There's a lot of different ways to be a good debater. And we've seen several presidents and vice presidents who are very good debaters, but in very different ways. And so when you're when you're debating, you want to play to your strengths. And I think Donald Trump realizes that Joe Biden's strength is he knows stuff, right? He was vice president for eight years. He has relationships with these international leaders. He has uh, been in the Senate forever. He has an encyclopedic knowledge of how our federal government works and, and has forgotten probably more about it than most people will ever know. So Trump realizes I can't play back and forth with him on facts. So what I've got to do is I've got to try to throw him off his game. I've got to try to get it. One of the things I think was most disgusting. If you are someone like me who has ever worked with kids with speech issues at all, uh, much has been written and much has been said about Joe Biden's stutter and he had a stutter when he was a kid, uh, having a stutter is, can, be, can be incredibly debilitating and can be terribly painful, especially for a child. And you can deal with them and mitigate them, but with a great deal of work and with a great deal of therapy. Trump and his guys, but here's, here's another thing you can do. You can bring it back. You can bring somebody back into a stutter with stress, with, with all, all sorts of emotional distress. Trump and his people specifically tried to do things that they knew would bring out his stutter, would, would make him 
get caught on on certain letters and certain plosive consonants and, and I, I just feel like that's 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 the most disgusting thing I've ever heard. I mean, one of the quickest ways, quickest ways that you can get on my bad side and and get my inner rage going is making fun of or or abusing or or attempting to bully some kid who's got a speech issue. And you know, when I watched Donald Trump up there trying to get Joe Biden to stutter and it was very clear that was what was going on. I just it, it it disgusted me. It enraged me. If I was ever on the the fence about Donald Trump in any way, shape, or form, that was that was a, a put it over the top. Well, aren't the debates to put the other person down and not really talk about what you can do for the American people anymore? It it seems like it's gone away from its intent to have a physical debate. Okay, this is how I feel about climate change. Uh, this is where you got it right. This is where you got it wrong. This is where my opinion differs from yours. It doesn't seem like that form of debate is anywhere in this process any longer. Well, let's let's lay some foundation here. First of all, debates in terms of statistics and in terms of voters deciding who they're going to vote for, the debates in the primaries that we've been talking about for the last three shows or so, those are are very useful. Because people are seeing candidates that they don't know who they are and, and are getting their, their feet wet in terms of this or that candidate that they might end up supporting and voting for, or at the very least finding out more about. Debates in the general presidential election are basically statistically useless. Almost no one. They've, they've studied debates. There's a, a, a terrific political scientist. He's studied every debate and the impact of it, every presidential debate from 1960 to the current. And he has found in his, in his research, he says almost no statistical swing or impact from people watching presidential debates. In other words, almost nobody decides who they're going to vote for in the general election. Keep in mind, I'm talking about the general, in the general two-person election because of the debates. In fact, Current studies are telling us that almost three quarters of people, and this was in the last election, 2016, I guarantee you it's higher now. In 2016, over 75% of likely voters, likely voters, have already made up their mind who they're going to vote for more than two months before election day. And I guarantee you that's higher now. So, so the debates don't swing anything. Pew Research did another study where they asked people after every election, after presidential elections, please rank the factors that led you to your voting choice. Number one, always far and away, candidates' position on issues. Uh, nothing else was even close. Then there was a bunch of others. And down around nine and ten every time was their performance in the debates. So people aren't tuning into these debates to say, hmm, I wonder who I'll vote for. Maybe I don't know enough about this Trump guy. Maybe he'll turn me around. That's not happening, okay? That's, that's key. The other thing that we know is the people who even watch the debates tend to be very politically literate. If you're watching the debate at all, you probably pay attention to politics, which means you've probably made up your mind already. So I have 
certainly gone on record in multiple forums as saying, especially with these debates where everybody sort of knows what they're doing and everybody knows where they're going. And when you've got a debater like Donald Trump, who's not really interested in having an exchange of ideas, why are we having them? They're, they're not helping anybody. I would argue that that first debate I watched last weekend degraded our national level of discourse. I felt like when I was done watching it that I was stupider than I was before I started. It, just everything about it, I, I, when I read this morning, when I woke up and read that Donald Trump does not want to have any more debates if they're going to do them in a, in a reasoned and controlled environment, I kind of went, hallelujah, that's great. I, we can be done. Let's just have the election. Let's just do it. Because yeah, everybody knows. I, I really feel like Donald's the one that needs the debate more for whatever reason. I think he's, he's slipping in the polls and if he wants to make a, a difference, but then again, I was like, this is, I think this is the first vice president debate I've seen in my lifetime and was geared up for and had on the schedule and paying attention to the answers. And I don't know who they're trying to appeal to, but I was looking for, confirmation in my decision which i I don't know if we uh, got yesterday you you with me joel i know we froze there for Um, a second on zoom Um, um but did we have a was there a purpose served last night in the vice president debate well, the first thing I got to say is if you're going to compare the two, last night's, as I watched at the vice presidential debate, I turned that off at the end and went, oh, at least that was like Civil. a recognizable debate. Like I could, it, I mean, yes, Mike Pence didn't answer really any questions asked of him. He basically made the speeches that he had prepped to make. I would say both of them avoided quite a few questions directly. I think they both walked in with what they wanted to say and, and they were not going to be deterred from that. Now, part of that is I think a terrible moderator. Both the moderators thus far, I feel like have just been just uh, utterly uh, uh, the, like, like trying to, to, to wrangle a room Bird full of cats, kindergartners. Yeah. yeah. But uh, I, I could at least recognize that that was that last night was something that I, I could look at and go, okay, that was your standard politician. Doesn't want to answer questions debate. You know, that was, that was something that we've seen in the past. Uh the thing about the vice presidential debates, obviously, is they tend to be a little bit more free form in most years. They tend to be a little bit more emotional because the vice president is generally the person, the, 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 the part of the ticket who is given license to say the things that the presidential candidate tries to avoid saying. Now, that's not the case with Donald Trump. Certainly, it's almost the opposite. But in general, the vice presidential nominee is is looked at sort of as the attack dog. You can really go after character. You can say some of the things about personal and finance and stuff like that, that the, the actual candidate themselves has to sort of keep their head above that. That was certainly not the case last night. It was the opposite. I saw two people being much more civil than the actual candidates themselves. Uh, but you also have, see, this is where other things come into play here. You have Whoever wins right now, you have a 74-year-old and a 78-year-old the day they take office facing off in the presidential candidacy. So not to be sort of the grim reaper here, but it is not inconceivable that you could see one of those two people last night who were debating in the vice presidential debates sitting behind the desk in the Oval Office before it's all over. These are old guys. And so vetting these vice presidential candidates, maybe giving them a little extra, again, I don't want to be morbid, but maybe giving them a little extra look than you would give 
the vice presidential candidates in a different year with a younger presidential candidate is worth doing. All right, let's knock the topics down that they went through yesterday because I definitely have my opinion, but I'm really eager to hear yours. A week ago, the president had his debate and he was healthy. Between then and now, he caught the virus that some say he has not handled very well. Pence had a comment basically talking about how he shut China down from flying into the U.S. after five cases. If that was a defense in my book, it didn't work because then how did the 210, 220,000 people still die if you shut down China's flight to America at five people or five cases? Also felt like Harris didn't really nail him to the carpet when it came to COVID. She had made the plexiglass request. Donald had caught COVID. There was, you know, a jump in the treatment for him at Walter Reed Center. Um, He tweeted 40 times in 30 minutes and took a little parade ride in a car. And there was a lot of opportunity to just really hammer the presidency on their response to COVID. How do you think the two vice president candidates handled the COVID situation? Uh, in terms of the vice presidential debates, well, the, the thing is, so the COVID issue is everything. It hits everything. You the COVID think- issue is the economy. The COVID issue is about healthcare. The COVID issue is about national security. The COVID issue is about trade. The COVID issue is about democracy and the transition of power. I mean, and race co- and, and race and race. The COVID, the COVID issue hits everything. So it's no wonder that. Other issues, such as, sadly, as we have discussed at these microphones, climate change, uh, guns, uh, school safety, things like that, those, those things have, have taken a back seat because COVID sort of, COVID, COVID's everything right now. So you, you have to be able to talk to voters in terms of this issue in a way that they feel like, A, you understand what they're going through. You understand what one of those 210,000 people who has lost someone in their lives, you've got to show you understand what they're going through. And B, this is most important, you, you've got to be able to put forth some sort of cogent plan. What are you going to do? What's, and, and what is a Biden plan? for dealing with COVID going to look like versus what is a Trump plan going to look like? There was one little swipe that uh, Pence took early on in the night. We saying that their COVID plan looks like they've just plagiarized off of ours. And plagiarism is something that Joe knows about going that, back. That about, was good. Going was back good about 15 years to, to something that Biden dealt with in a speech. Uh, but the issue, I think when you look at what the two different campaigns are trying to do, what the Biden Harris campaign's trying to do is saying, look, you're you're dealing with a president who has not taken this seriously, has put Americans at risk. And the thing that all they have to point to is that gigantic event in the Rose Garden that we now think may have been a super spreader event, bringing in their new Supreme Court nominee. And it's just, I mean, every morning you wake up and you see three or four new people 
in the headlines who have now tested positive who were there. And the camera pans and nobody's wearing a mask. And they're all sitting close together. And so what the, the, the Biden-Harris campaign needs to do is say, look, if they're not going to do what they say we should do, if they're not going to take this seriously, and it's going to put their people at risk, their staffers, their folks who come to their events. They can't be trusted with the rest of the people. Well, what, then when Joe Schmo in, oh, I don't know, you know, Snohomish, Washington, looks at that and goes, huh, well, they're not wearing their mask. Why should I wear mine? By God, I'm going down to the bar. And, you know, that that's it. it makes it very hard to enforce any sorts of health standards as a government, as a local or a state government, when you look up at the federal government and they're not doing anything. You know, I, I watched the, the gubernatorial debates with Lauren Culp and, and Jay Inslee right after the vice presidential debate. And they, that one was all about COVID too. But the difference there was you had one candidate, Lauren Culp, the Republican, who was basically saying, hey, listen, I believe in masks. I believe that you should wear them. I'm, I'll, I'll give people, if I'm governor, I'll give them all the statistics. I'll give them all the research. But then everybody should get to make their decision for themselves. That's freedom, brother. Well, that's the, that's the thing. In other words, you, you have someone who is a law enforcement officer who is running to be the governor of a state who at a very basic level is rejecting the idea of government to enforce behavior in law. I don't and even know I, how he got... Uh, How do you square that circle? You know, he's a a sheriff with one employee, and then he mishandled the biggest case that he ever got. And that's the thing is he's not popular. If you you look at at the primary numbers, I mean, if I were Jay Inslee, I would just be ignoring this guy. I would never say his name. I mean, in a gigantic Democratic state, this is this is the problem for the Republicans in a gigantic Democratic state is you can't get Republicans to run of of inequality. This guy had nothing last night. I was watching. He was just name calling Inslee a lot. He he didn't have any plans or procedure. All he wanted to do was say whatever you're doing is wrong to the right. governor. He he doesn't he doesn't have anything. And and so but that's the problem in a, in a key democratic state is is you can't get Republicans to run. So this is this is the best you can get. But that's the thing to take it back around to what we were talking about. When a governor in a state or, or let's say the mayor of a small town or county health departments are trying to get people to wear masks, to socially distance, to be sensible about the precautions that they're taking, to quarantine and get tested when you feel bad, and then they look at their federal government, what the highest levels of government, and they see those people not observing any of those rules, it makes it incredibly difficult to make anybody do anything for the public good because they're going, well, they're not at Starbucks on the way into school because it'll be late. And then I walk around the halls with a latte in my hand, with a venti, whatever. I can't, I can't be surprised when they show up five minutes late to my classroom with their, with their mochaccino. Mm -hmm. So do you feel like the, there was an opportunity missed in the discussion of COVID by the Democrats? I feel like, I mean, yes and no. On the one hand, I feel like there were so many opportunities missed. Yes, I, I would I would love to see them really speak in terms of, of brass tacks about what the president is doing in terms of COVID. Uh, but on the other hand, if 
if a voter is not seeing this for themselves now, I don't know what more you're supposed to do. I mean, we saw, I, I, was, I was out at Long Beach Friday night uh, at, at my father-in-law's place, and, and we sat and watched on the big screen TV as the President of the United States got into a helicopter and flew off to the hospital because he'd been diagnosed with a respiratory issue and was having trouble breathing. I mean, that's, that's powerful stuff. The last, time, the last memory I have of a president coming out of the White House and getting into a helicopter and flying away is Nixon. And he was flying away for good. He was flying away for bye-bye. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, Trump himself is a walking indictment of everything he has done or has not done in terms of COVID. And now here's, here's the great thing in terms of spin. Have you seen what they're doing? Trump is saying, well, now that I've recovered from COVID, uh, I understand it. I know what it is. And so Joe Biden doesn't have any right to talk about COVID and anything because he hasn't had it. They're actually banging on Joe Biden for not having gotten the virus. Well, I mean, a lot of the audacity stuff, right? of that. That's amazing. Kind of like mail fraud in the voting system. It's a huge conspiracy against keeping him in power. Let's get on to economics and jobs. And, yeah, and yeah. I mean, I feel like there was a lot of pivoting towards uh, the appointment of the judge and China. Those are two things that I felt like Pence harped on. And he would ignore one question and get into his rant mm-hmm. about China or um, women's rights and abortion and such. Um, when they keep saying that, you know, the economy's coming back and that they're creating these jobs, they fail to tell us how many jobs were lost prior. So like I, I cut 10 people from, from the team and uh, then tomorrow I say, Hey, I've hired five new people. You know, there's growth in, in this industry. Well, there's also five people out on the street. How do you feel um, the Republicans are doing w- when it comes to the economy and creating jobs? Well, it depends on who you talk to. I mean, uh, Malcolm X has a great line. You don't stab a man with a knife in five inches, pull it out two and say you've made progress. It's yes. You, if you're solving problems, that's great. But if those problems are then inherently of your own making, it's like the postal service. You can't pass laws that say the postal service doesn't get any money and then turn around and point your finger at the postal service and go, you're not making any money. We're going to shut you down. And that's been, that's been proven to be wrong because they said they had two and a half billion dollars more money this year due to all the Amazon sales and that the postal right. office is actually making money for a change. And, and, but they, but nobody would even be having this discussion if they hadn't passed a law that says the Postal Service has to be able to fund its pension out 75 years. No business has to fund its pension out to 75 years. They, they fully knew what they were doing when they passed that law. But in, in terms of, of economics, one of the moments from the presidential debate that I really wish I'd seen Joe Biden just go to town on uh, was when they talked about recovery and economic recovery. And Joe Biden referenced what a lot of economists are talking about now, saying it's not a V-shaped recovery in which you go down, but then you come back up. He said it's a K-shaped recovery, which is an economic term. Well, it's very clear Donald Trump did not know what that meant. And he Mm -hmm. said, well, K-shaped recovery, I I don't know what you're talking about. That is exactly the point where Joe Biden needs to go, look, I don't have time to teach you economics 101, but 
basically a K-shaped recovery means there are two tracks. And for people who have money, things are getting better. And for people who don't, things are getting worse. So the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. So the rich are getting richer, but the poor are getting poorer. But he didn't do that. He just kind of got flustered and moved on. And as a result, that's what you can do in a debate. You, you can make complex concepts that are very important. You can make them simple and understandable in a way that you can't do if somebody's like reading a speech you wrote or, or reading an essay. Now, it's very interesting. Joe Biden did a town hall uh, this, this last was I think it was Monday night as well, uh, did it down in Florida. And people, you know, standing way far back, taking off their mask for a second, asking him questions with a microphone with a little baggie on it. And he was terrific. Mm-hmm. He looked them in the eye and he, he answered their actual questions and talked about their lives and said, oh, I'm sorry you've lost the person you've lost. Let me tell you what's going to happen, it, it, how we would have fixed that, how we would have done that differently. That's, that's how this next debate was supposed to be. That's how it was all. supposed to be. And, and that's, I, was, I was looking forward to seeing Donald in that type of environment and how right. he would react. Because that's where Joe is at his people. best. Yeah. And, and you can tell that Joe had been coached. They said, listen, when you get flustered, when he's coming at you, when he's flustering, stop, take a breath, look directly at the camera, and talk to the people. Forget mm-hmm. he's there. And I know Kamala what, tried to do that a few times last night, too. Kamala tried to, tried to do that as, as well. Um, Joe, for all his uh, foibles, and he does have some, and for all he can sort of go into grandpa telling a story, uh, he does that well. He looks at the camera well and and communicates to people because, again, his story is so profound. I mean, the, having lost his, his wife and daughter right after he became a senator in that tragic car accident, then having lost a, another son who was on his way potentially to the presidency to brain cancer. I mean, he has experienced loss in his life. He has experienced tragic just right out of the blue. You did nothing to deserve it loss. And when you've done that, number one, I think it just it leaves a mark on you. But number two, it develops empathy. You know that anything can happen to anybody at any time, that life is not fair. Stuff just pops out of the blue and takes us down sometimes. And so if you are in rough shape right now, it's not because you did anything wrong. You made bad decisions with your money. You did something to deserve it. No, Mm -hmm. stuff just happens to people sometimes. And he knows that. Well, on the other side of the coin, you've got this guy, Donald Trump, who basically got his dad's money. Nothing seriously wrong has ever happened in his life that money couldn't take care of. And as a result, when he is confronted with people suffering, it's like, wow, he, he looks at you kind of, I don't know, with the head tilt of like, how, how did that happen to you? I wonder what what do people do when things go wrong in their lives? I've, mm-hmm. I've never really dealt with that. And there's an incredible lack of empathy. And so when Joe looks out at the camera, he knows he's, again, like we said at the beginning of this, playing to his strengths. Well, Pence comes off to me as a highly religious, conservative, um, good debater that seems calm, but he definitely understands how to pivot into the answers that he wants to say, regardless if it has any relativity to the question. Absolutely. And I found myself a couple of times going, Oh, that was articulate. Hey, he's not talking about the he's question not. at all. <laughs> change had, up, 
changeup pitch. It's like Felix taking about 30 miles an hour off that fastball and then throwing it in. The, yeah. the interesting thing with, with Pence is when Kamala was doing her debate prep, you know who played Pence for her? It's Mayor Pete. Yeah, he had it. Pete Buttigieg. I want to get to this because Pete, because Pete was a mayor in South Bend when Pence was the governor of Indiana. So Pete has dealt with him a lot. So and Pete, Pete had the line of the of the post debate for sure in saying that I don't know why Pence wants to be aligned with a president who beds down porn stars. Like, how does that get into your uh, conservative? Your Christianity, yeah, yeah, uh, and then. Pete, he keeps segueing to the appointment of the judge who may or may not be in favor of overturning Roe, Roe v. Wade. Wade. Yeah. And um, I thought that that was stuck on his head the whole time. Like get the word out about our judge appointment. Well, those are his possible. people. I mean, that's the thing. What Go again. so many religious conservatives and, and they are really in so many ways, still the base of the Republican party. They put up with, so much crap from Donald Trump. They put up with sleeping with the porn stars. They put up with making fun of disabled reporters. They put up with all this stuff. They hold their nose. And because what they want is that court. They want those justices. And and by the way, you can't argue, he has delivered. He yeah. will, if he can get Amy Coney Barrett on there, he will have reshaped that court for literally a generation. They will, he will have delivered what they gave him. And they are willing, and Pence knows, they are willing to put up with Donald Trump if he delivers them some tax cuts and some justices. And so, yes, of course, that's what you're going to... How many times last night did you hear him talking about Joe Biden's going to raise your taxes? Day one, taxes. Taxes, 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 and judges, judges, judges. Judges so and taxes. Explain to me what he kept accusing um, Harris of potentially doing if they do get the judge in packing the courts. What did he mean by that? So there's nothing magical about the number nine, right? We have Supreme Court justices right now. We've got nine. Well, you need to have an odd number, obviously, because you don't want ties. But throughout American history, we've had all kinds of different numbers of justices. We've had three. We've had five. We've had nine for, for quite a while. But there's nothing in, there's no law that says, we couldn't have 11. We couldn't have 13. And so the idea is, and this was actually something that Pete Buttigieg talked a lot about when he was, when we were still in the primary, he believed very strongly that because the, the Republicans did what they did, which is when Obama still had months left in his presidency and Justice Antonin Scalia died, and the Republicans blocked his nomination because they said, well, there's, a, there's, there's an election coming up, so we shouldn't seat during an election. And now you've had Ruth Bader Ginsburg die literally two months before an election, and they're ready to fill it. Just incredible hypocrisy. And they've done these rhetorical dances around, well, now we've got the House and the Senate, and people made the vote, eh, whatever. Um, but the idea is, if Joe Biden were to win the presidency, and the other thing you have to do with this is you have to win the Senate too. So if the Democrats were to control the Senate, which is where the Senate Judiciary Committee is, and the presidency, the idea is let's create more justiceships. So instead of nine, we'd go up to 
12 or something. 11. Well, it's got to be an odd number. So 11, okay. 13, whatever. Pete had this very complex plan of like, we're going to have 15, but five are going to be appointed by the president. Five will be appointed by the other five and five will be elect. It was very, very complex. But the problem is, okay, you can do that. And then the Democrats would could potentially turn the court back into a more moderate court as opposed to a 6-3 conservative swing that could do things like overturn Roe v. Wade, kill Obamacare, all that sort of stuff. But at a certain point, then the court becomes a political entity, which is different from what the founders intended. They wanted lifetime appointments because they wanted this section of government to be above elections and voting. Well, if, if you start packing the court, the danger is, let's say you've got 11 justices and 13 justices. Now what you've created in a sense, is a mini-Senate. You've created another legislative branch of government, and when it hands down decisions, people in local states can do things like go, well, the Supreme Court's just political. We don't have to pay attention to that. No, just because they've handed down this thing that restricts gun rights in my state, uh, that's that's a liberal court that did that. I'm, I'm going to continue to enforce gun laws the way I see it, or abortion laws the way I see it. And so you take a risk. Yeah, you you keep Trump from packing a 6-3 conservative court, but you take a tremendous risk of delegitimizing the court. The other thing you would have to do to do that, because the Republicans would try to block it, is, and maybe you should do this anyway, aside from the Supreme Court, is you've got to blow up the filibuster. You have to end the filibuster. And that's something that would have long-reaching consequences in terms of how we run this country anyway. But one of the things that Pete said that I found was very interesting when he was prepping Kamala Harris for the debate. He said, the thing you always have to remember about Pence is he has this incredible ability to say horrible, terrible things in a calm and soothing way. And so he can, he can talk about taking away a woman's right to choose, or he can talk about uh, uh, defunding Medicare, do whatever. But he, he, he says, as if a Dr. Seuss story, Defunding medical care? Defunding medical care, but he is able to do it as if he were reading his, his favorite grandchild, a Dr. Seuss story. He, he has this ability to just, and, and Reagan had a little bit of this too. Pence takes it to almost a scary, comfort, warm bath ASMR level that's just, yay. Yeah. Well, I got some ideas for change and uh, might help everybody in the future. One being uh, get rid of the electoral college, get rid of the filibuster being two, add some term limits to these judges so they're not half foot in the grave and people just hovering over them waiting in anticipation to fill these spots. And lastly, if you're going to take away Obamacare, or however you want to say it, during a pandemic, when you yourself are sick, I want you to highlight what the better situation is going to be with healthcare and pre-existing conditions. Because, because now you know everybody has a pre-existing COVID condition, right? Or or could could, yeah. and then does that deny their medical benefits? And and if we're not going for free healthcare or, or an extension of Obamacare or an abbreviated version of Obamacare, what exactly is the plan for taking care of our, our sick? Yeah, I think that we are coming to, and especially because of, I think, the first two things you mentioned, the filibuster and the electoral college, 
we are coming, some of us faster, some of us slower, to a realization that maybe a group of white moneyed men in the 17 and 1800s were not all seeing and all knowing in terms of making the user's manual for this United States. Maybe every idea they had wasn't a great idea. Maybe they were really only able to look at it from their point of view. And several of them, in fact, owned slaves. And, and there were no women in the room and so on and so on and so on. And so maybe uh, we need to sort of take this thing kind of like the Mariners are doing. Maybe we need to take this whole thing down to the studs and, and look and see, okay, what works for us now? As, but does the Second Amendment really work for us now in the era of the purchasable grenade launcher as, as it did for them in the era of the front-loading flintlock musket? <laughs> Maybe if they had known what was going on, they would have set things up a little differently. Does the idea of the Senate, the Senate itself, does it re- really work now in terms of giving people representation? We are very married, very married to this idea of states. And that's because in their initial layout of the country, they saw states as almost these little countries. And so they wanted different states to have equal representation. So Rhode Island needs to have as much representation as New York and all that. Well, now, what's that that given us now? Now we have a situation where a tiny percentage of the country has exactly the same representation legislatively in our government as a whopping half of, of our and that and that feeds into the electoral college that feeds into everything so maybe maybe we've we've done as good as we could for for this time period but maybe now we are coming to the realization that it's maybe time to to take it all down to the studs and go listen what works and what doesn't every every great sports team that's gone on to win a championship at some point they've brought in somebody either a coach, a general manager, somebody who goes, okay, we need to look at every position and have nobody be sacred. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like anybody does with the Hawks. Anybody's or Belichick does with the Patriots. There are no sacred. He let Tom Brady walk out the door. He let mm-hmm. Tom Brady walk out the door. Nobody being sacred. When you have certain things in your organization that are just untouchable, oh, whatever it is, we can't mess with that. Okay, that's going to put a ceiling on where you can go. And what great players do is what the Houston Astros did aside from banging on trash cans, is they said, listen, we're willing to get really bad for a couple of years in order to build a dominant team. We're willing to take it all the way down to the skeleton and then build back up with quality. And you got to do that sometimes. See, I thought the Astros got rid of all the, those money players so they can invest in spy equipment and uh, uh, ways of cheating. That, Astros? Yeah, that was, that was, that, yeah, that's part of it. They, they definitely did. They were, but again, they're, they're, look at what's happening in baseball now. Look at what's happening with the Mariners. The, what Jerry DePoto was brought in to do is, listen, take it all, blow this and get Robinson Cano out of town. Get, let's, let's end up with Felix. I'm surprised Kyle Seeger's still there. Let's, let's get all the salary out of town. Let's build it up from the ground level right and good. And nobody's sacred. And nobody can't be touched. And, and I'm, I think we're coming to a point where we're realizing now, I don't know how that's going to get initiated because there are certain groups of people like older white guys like me who've got it pretty sweet under the old system. 
But at some point, we're going to have to go, hey, you know what? I think we have to take this Constitution thing and how our government's laid out at a basic level and look at what works now and what doesn't and not what worked for 1,700 white slave owners. All right. I got a couple more questions before I let you go. Hit me. Um, Just a reminder that that presidential debate um, is proposed virtually through Zoom like we're doing now with the internet lagging every five minutes on my end, it seems like. Um, for October 15th, I thought there was a couple moments I wanted to point out last night that hit me kind of hard. Um, Kamala sounded, and I know this from editing my own podcast, that sometimes your voice confidence when you're reading the audio lines are, is a little low and I'm pretty passive when it comes to speaking up. I felt like Kamala's voice really was shaky at the beginning and low, and she didn't come out with confidence. And the first topic had to be COVID. So that was a missed opportunity in my mind. I think she did try the old um, Joe Biden look into the camera, which I think they stole from Don Johnson in Miami Vice. So you stare down the lens, talk to the people. And she said, they're coming for you. And that, yeah. that kind of was a strong point right there. That was that was powerful. Um, I know Pence, in my mind, put his foot in his mouth big time when he said, and I'm paraphrasing here and don't fact check me because this is not factual podcast. This is opinionated satire, if anything. Um, he said, you can trust this American president puts the American's health first. And I'm like, you don't even put your own health, Big Mac eating mofo, COVID having type guy, obesely overweight with all this one plan of getting rid of Obamacare. There's never been like a a Trump will take care of you Medicare plan that he's touted in my mind. And I feel like he really stepped in it there. Like, how can you say he's taking care of Americans and their health first when we're in a situation where we desperately need a reform in our healthcare system, in my opinion, in my humble opinion, it might not be everybody else's. Um, the one thing I did want to talk about a little bit was it seemed that when they debated about climate control and Jay Inslee, our governor was a trumpeter for that. Um, it seemed to break down to one fundamental subtopic of environment being fracking and a go go between like yes we'll frack no we won't frack we'll limit fracking joel underwood what the frack is going on well i think those the the folks who they're not going to say it because it's an unpopular thing to say right now but that don't believe that the climate is changing because of human behavior i i noticed that it was it was striking to me that mike pence donald trump and lauren culp in the gubernatorial debate, all basically had the same line that same started messaging. out their climate, their, when, when asked about climate change, which is almost word for word, they all said, well, the climate is changing. Yeah, and a- American, absolutely. Americans want to be free. And America, and, 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 but, but the idea is, okay, they don't want to say that human behavior and human industrial behavior is, calling climate, is causing climate change. So here comes the problem. We are being presented one of the oldest debate tricks that, that I always used to teach my, my debaters to watch out for is called the false choice. 
the idea that you're presenting your opponent and your audience with, okay, it's got to be A or it's got to be B. There is no other choice. And so what conservatives have done over and over again, hold on, there's a lawnmower outside. I'm going to close the window real fast and I'm back. What conservatives have done over and over again is present the false choice that Climate change has got to be about, and to, to be fair, our own governor has been one of the primary people who has combated this idea, that you're either going to save the environment and do good things for the climate, but that's going to cost jobs and dollars in your economy, or you're going to do good things for the economy, but you have to kind of give up the idea that we're going to put a lot of pollutants into the air and you know the, that uh, solar panels don't are too expensive. To make. That it's got to be the economy and jobs or it's got to be the climate. It's an either or. They have a lot of eggs in the basket of that false choice. And what Democrats and specifically our own governor have been trying to drive the conversation to is, no, 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 it's not either or. You can do things that are very good for the economy and create jobs. And those jobs can come from doing things and creating industries that are good for the climate. And it's going to be, it's going to be great. And I like Joe Biden's take on it that, hey, listen, somebody's going to do that. It can be us or it can be China, but Mm -hmm. somebody's going to do it. Wouldn't you rather it be us? But when they go off on these long screeds, and one of the things that made me crazy, oh my God, I want to get a hold of whoever coached both Joe and Camel and just just throttle them. I kept writing down on my notes over and over again, the sad shake of the head with a smile is not a rhetorical device, right? You can't, how many times did you see Donald Trump or Mike Pence just go off on some crazy tangent saying things that were just absolutely and utterly not true? And all Joe and Camilla really had was kind of a, <laughs> that's just not. And you're going, say to do, stop them, say so, fact check them, do something. But, but this sort of smirky shake of the head, like, oh, you're just such a petulant child and I'm the adult who knows better. It's like, Mm -hmm. that's not a rhetorical device. That's not something that's going to help you. It made me crazy. Yeah, the facial expressions tell a lot and and probably too much. If you're playing poker or you're in a debate, you have certain tells. I mean, I, I don't agree so much with the nodding of the head like nah i just can't get behind that but immediately articulate why you're shaking your head right and and not be cavalier it's not a joke it's not a funny moment you know that's that's it that's it right there you look when you do that it makes you look like you're not taking it seriously like you're not taking what they say seriously like there isn't a third of the country who believes what this person just said and that you have to deal with that and, and, and it's coaching. I mean, right. It's coaching. These people have been coached. They have had, they have run preps. They have been coached by people who supposedly know what they're doing. And you know, you, you know what you're going to get, you know, you're debating Donald Trump, you know, he's going to interrupt you. You know, he's going to say crazy things. So the question then becomes as a coach working with your, your debater. So what are you going to do when that happens? When he starts saying things like that, as you know, he's going to, what are you going to do? And whoever told him, just shake your head and laugh a little bit is, is out of their minds. And the same, now I will give Camel a little bit more uh, credit because you haven't seen Mike Pence debate as much. And so I think part of what you're talking about with her coming out a little tentative, it's kind of like boxers at the beginning of a match where for the first round, you kind of just circle each other, maybe throw a little puncher because you don't know what the other person has. Okay, what are you going to do? You're feeling them out. 
are you going to, are you going to come right at me and say crazy stuff? Or are you going to be just a happy grandpa? Like, what are you going to do? And so, cause you're going to, as Pete Carroll is fond of saying with the Seahawks, you're going to adjust, they're going to adjust, and then you got to adjust to the adjustment. And, and so that's, that's kind of what's going on in the first 10, 15 minutes of, of any one of those debates. Yeah. Read the room a bit. Um, the, yeah. You really have to listen to the words <laughs> to know who's, who you feel like won the debate or not. I will say this. I feel like Pence just is, is a strong debater and, uh, he looked well up there, even though what I heard him say didn't match his posture and his voice and his vibe. Uh, mm-hmm. Kamala Harris, there's a difference between debate and prosecuting. She's a prosecutor. Mm-hmm. I would have liked to have seen her not try to play on Pence's straight strength of debate, but to prosecute the inadequacies of the, the things that he was saying you know, put it back in her comfort zone. And then that weak voice that we were talking about a little bit earlier, maybe that doesn't show up. Maybe that gives her confidence to really go on the attack and uh, be a little bit more successful. Joel. Um, yeah. I. So, so when we start, I guess as, as we need to, to start moving towards talking about winning and losing, it, it's, it's fair to basically say, listen, both sides went into both these debates saying, what's this debate for? As we've already established, most people don't change their minds based on a debate. They just, they just don't. Most, most general election voters don't change their mind on debate. So if you're in the Republican camp or if you're in the Democratic camp, whatever, you're sitting down before the debate prep starts and you're saying, okay, what's the point? What do we want to get out of this debate? And if you're not trying to sway voters to change their mind, again, if you're a Trump voter, you loved what you saw. I mean, I've, I've looked at the reactions. I've, I've been on social media. I've looked, Trump, Trump people loved what they saw. Oh, I love what he did. Oh, he gave it to him. Oh, he steamrolled. Uh, Pence people loved last night. They were like, oh, yeah, he steamrolled. Or, oh, it was great. If you're a Joe Biden person, you were like, oh, he was so good. He rose above it. Oh, he was. Nobody saw anything that was going to change their mind. So as a result, what are you trying to do? You're trying to motivate your people to actually either A, get out and vote themselves, send in that mail-in ballot if they haven't already, or even better, get someone else to vote. That's the trick. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it recently. I know you're a big fan of, of AOC. Um, she recorded a, a lovely little uh, speech piece that, they, that they've been playing in part of the commercials. And she's telling young people, she's like, there is someone in your life who needs to vote. And you're the only person, it's a grandparent, it's somebody, you're the only person who can get them to do it. That's your job with this election. I mean, that's, that's powerful. That's the kind of stuff that, mm-hmm. that they're trying to get people to do. So basically, all you're really trying to do in this debate, no matter which side you're on, is feed red meat to your base and get them pumped up to either get out and vote themselves, if they haven't already done it yet, or get somebody else who was, yeah, oh, I know my neighbor, Dave. He's, he's, he's kind of a Trump guy, but he, I bet he hasn't voted yet. I'm going over to his door. Dave, have you voted yet? That's what you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. So you're not necessarily trying to win and beat the other person with ideas as much as you are trying to rev up your people. That's what winning looks like to these folks. I'm super confused about the new Green Deal. And I, I've been watching it since 
they start talking about it. In my Speaking mind, of AOC, yeah. In my mind, it's an idea that is up for debate and shaping going forward. It's not concrete. But when I get into situations where Biden and Harris have to speak upon the new Green Deal, I feel like there's a lot of mixed messages from the whole Democratic side site that, you know, it's it's Bernie's this, it's AOC's this, it's Biden's this, it's we're for the new Green Deal, we're against the new Green Deal. Yeah. You're seeing a little bit of conservatism by Harris and uh, Biden now as well. And I would like the Democrats to kind of take a stance on it, saying that this is the idea and this is what it means. This is what it entails. This it's is goals. Long term it's plan. goals. It's That's, goals. Yeah. It's goals. It's not policies. It's goals. Right. But so again, that works. That only works when you let the Republicans feed you that idea of that false choice. It's taking care of the climate or it's it's jobs and economy because that's mm-hmm. what they do when they when they come out against the green new they say oh the green new deal is going to cost this many jobs oh cows are going to go away which by the way is not in the green new deal oh they don't which want anybody be a to horrible f- thing <laughs> they don't want anybody to fly they don't want anybody. and what they're trying to do is scare you and give yeah. you that false choice and say it's jobs and economy or it's it's the planet and the only way you can combat that as the Democrats can do, you can't get into this. Well, we'll do this much of the Green New Deal, but not this. This part of it's good, but that's not. No, now you're already playing in front of the. Uh, they're you're already laying, letting the soccer team play in front of your goal. Okay, mm-hmm. plug out to Aston Villa, undefeated right now. Way but to go, Villa! Villa beating 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 Liverpool seven to. Oh, that was amazing. Seven to two. Seven I watched eight. that. Amazing. But the you're you're already playing in front of your goal if you're having that conversation. The conversation you need to have is, no, it's not a choice. It's both. You can well, should, have an incredible should, economy and you can take care of the climate. Shouldn't the conversation have been between Biden and Harris as this is our message when it comes to the new Green Deal before both these debates happen? Because I think they contradicted each other. And, and again, this gets into actually a very interesting thing is how much if you are a vice presidential candidate, first of all, how much of your presidential candidate are you expected to sort of crack the whip and make every Democrat say the same thing? Because every Democrat isn't the same. You are oh, the leader of the party. Messaging but, but should be the same. Messaging. Well, and this is, no, nah, Luke, we can talk about messaging. Um, uh, or, and how much, if you're the vice presidential nominee, are you supposed to be totally lockstep in line with your candidates? And we've had different versions of that throughout various elections but i gotta give it up you gotta you gotta give credit where credit's due this is something the republicans do better than the democrats this is something conservatives do better than liberals when they decide on whatever policy whether it's packing the supreme court whether it is climate change whether it is uh, uh school vouchers whatever you want they get their points in order they get it distributed fast and everybody says the same thing and it is a unified message it comes out of fox it comes out of everywhere and man you are not going to have and it's powerful it's a campaign approach campaign being defined as as getting the same information from multiple different inputs and and they're they're good at this and by the nature of liberalism by the nature of of what democrats believe they don't do that they give everybody more room for individualized opinion. Whereas conservatives, you are expected when 
the policy comes down from above, whether that policy comes down from Mitch McConnell or whoever, everybody is expected to circle the wagons and get in line. And they do. And Democrats, because they don't believe you should have to, don't. And sometimes it works to their detriment. Yeah, there was there's a lot of opinion in it. Like right after the debate turned on CNN and it was like a landslide Harris victory. Mm. Then this morning I was listening to Robert Shapiro saying, you know, that Harris was absolutely destroyed, didn't have a single good moment. And last night I watched Fox and Friends and I was like, well, this is kind of fair and balanced and I never believed it to be so because they had Democrats and Republicans on the panel and they Mm. both kind of debated back and forth of what was good and what was bad. It's so much left and right leaning. It's just nothing down the middle. Like we can say this was factual and this was erroneous. This was correct. This is not. Let's just stick to the words and and the words have meaning. But it seems like the spin is already there depending on what channel, what magazine, what newspaper is printing the article. Do you find that journalism has just lost its way? Well, it depends on the journalism, but yes, I mean, confirmation bias is a real thing. We psychologically, there's been study after study after study. Human beings don't like to have our opinions challenged. We like to be confirmed. We like to be told we're right, that the things we're scared of, we should be scared of, and that the things we're happy about, we should be happy about. And so what cable did is, and talk radio did this first, but then cable came in right behind, is now you don't have to be. If you don't want to be challenged, you can watch and there's, they're, they're making a lot of money by doing it. Money is the driver, right? You can watch whatever you want that will confirm you. You never have to have your opinions challenged. If, if I'm my happy little uh, 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 democratic self, I can turn on MSNBC and I can watch hour after hour as Rachel Maddow and Chris Hayes tell me that the president's an awful person and is putting the government at risk and, and all this stuff. And if I'm on the opposite side of it, if, if I'm somebody is, if I'm a conservative, uh, uh, business owner living down in Shelton, I can turn on Fox and I can watch hour after hour of Sean Hannity telling me that the people that I'm afraid of, I should be afraid of. And the people that I think want to take my rights away do want to take my rights away. And they make a lot of money off of doing that. Remember, yeah, look at Alex Jones. He, you know, hey, oh, yeah. earthquake's going to come by this tub of earthquake preparedness, freeze dried fruit. Well, that's that's the most direct version of it, but but it's it, it works in every version. I mean, the idea of I mean, you always have to keep in mind when you're watching these shows, when you're watching these news networks, whatever you're watching, okay, they Drink have first. They're, they're well that <laughs> they're expected to make money, and they're expected yeah. by their networks to make as much money as possible. Once upon a time, the TV news was supposed to be a loss lead. In other words, the people at ABC News or at a- the ABC Network knew that they were going to make their money on Charlie's Angels and Love Boat, and the news was going to lose money every night in mm-hmm. terms of advertising. And it was built in to do that. It was supposed to do that. So when the news doesn't have to make money, it can just report. As soon as the news has to make money, because it's the only thing on the channel, and so you have to get the highest ratings you can possibly get, so you can sell the commercial time in the breaks for as much time per as much money per minute as you possibly can well now you have to do the news differently 
Now you have to keep people from turning away. Now you have to keep people locked in. Now you have to keep them from clicking away. So you're going to confirm their bias and tell them that, um, you know, those you're, you're scared that Mexicans are coming in and taking your jobs. You're right. They are. Let's talk about how they are. You know, you're not having your opinions challenged. I, and, and hey, I'm as bad as the next person. When I'm out at my father-in-law's house and he has every news channel known to man because he was in TV news for so long, I, I'll flip over to Fox or I'll flip over to one of those other net and I can watch for a little while. And then I just, I start to, gah, I just, I feel dirty and I, mm-hmm. and I can't. And, and that's just the power of my confirmation bias kicking in. Psychologically, I do not want to be challenged. I want to be told that what I think is right. And the great thing about cable news and the horrible thing about cable news is if I go up and down the the guide a little bit, I can find a channel that's going to fit me and tell me that I'm right. And then I'm going to stay on it and I'm going to watch those commercials, which is what they want. All right. Hunter Biden or Donald Trump Jr. Who's the more petulant son? Good God. Neither of them are doing their dads any favors, are they? Um, yeah, and and it's too bad because it, it it takes the focus off of off of where it it needs to be. Listen, there's a long history of presidential family members and presidential candidate family members doing their their family doing their their candidate wrong. Goes all the way back to Roger Clinton and uh, Billy Carter. Uh, Billy Carter. Or Billy Carter. Yeah, that that go back and and it's tough because as a presidential candidate. You know, family over and over again in all the polls, they tell us family's important. Voters say family's important. You want to win the Midwest, family's important. So you can't just throw your family off the side of the boat. But by the same token, you got to wonder if Joe Biden just goes home sometimes, just sits at the kitchen table and just goes, ugh. And Hunter calls up and says, hey, you did great, Dad. He's like, I don't want to talk to you right now. Like, you just, you didn't, you ain't helping, son. You ain't making my life any easier. I, I think that happens with both of them and Eric Trump as well. Uh, I'm a member of the L. What was it? What was it? He came out. They were talking on Fox and Friends about how it, how does your dad deal with the LGBT community? And he was talking. He's like, no, my dad loves the LGBT. I love the LGBT. I'm a member of that community. Yeah, no, it's great. Blah, blah. And then you're, you're just sitting there rewinding going, did Eric Trump just come out? on Fox News? Like, what just happened there? And of course, he comes back later and says he misspoke. But I mean, when you get the kids and the family involved, mm-hmm. man, they, they hurt so much, so much more often than they help. I, th- I would argue, again, I, I feel like the one exception to that, I, I think Ivanka does her dad a lot of good. She really, really, she's smooth, she's polished, she presents a good message. I think she's got a future in politics. Uh, I, I think she is someone who softens his edges. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, Jared's crooked as can be and well-funded <sighs> and uh, a mini Donald Jr. Um, really? himself. So they should be a power couple coming down the pipes eventually. Joel Underwood, thank you very much. I always get more insightful speaking to you and I uh, appreciate your time talking about the vice presidential debates. Yeah, buddy. And and so we're going to, I guess we'll just hang in and see. I, again, like I said, Trump's thing seems to change every day. He may come out tomorrow and says he want to do another debate. Uh, but right now, it looks like we may have had all the debates we're going to have. And so now, uh, maybe the, the uh, barring something crazy happening, maybe it's time for you and I to talk again after after the election. And when we see we've got a new 
a new president. Now, but here's the thing. Let's, let's, let's be, and everybody out there, I can't say this enough. You got to let go. You got to let go of the spectacle of election night with all this mail-in balloting happening, which is good. Mail-in ballot is lower fraud, higher accuracy. We may not know who the president is till close to Thanksgiving. We're, we might not know until Thanksgiving. So if you're going to get upset and you really politically, you want to know who the president is November 4th, I'm sorry, that's not going to happen. That's not the way our government's going to work anymore. So everybody out there has got to get okay with that. So once that happens, and once we do actually have a concession speech and, and you and I know who the who the, the person's going to be and the oldest president in American history is getting ready to, to take, uh, to, to, to take the oath of office. Maybe you and I should sit down and, and, uh, decompress and, and, uh, go through and say what happened. Yeah. Or maybe, you know, we have a midterm Seahawk report card. Hey, who knows, man, they're going into, they, they could go into the buy five and oh, they got Minnesota this week on. They always do well on Sunday night, um, and uh, if they, they have never started five and zero, wouldn't that be awesome? It's already awesome. I'm, it's it's already awesome. But I'm but, enjoying yeah. the season. It's great. Well, all over the NFL. I mean, look at these scores. They're like basketball games. There's no defense. There's no defense mm-hmm. anywhere. And that's what the NFL's wanted to do for so long. All the rules changes are finally taking effect. Like you can't touch a receiver, you can't touch a quarterback. So of course the scores are twenties and thirties and forties. And what did I see that Cleveland hung fifty on Dallas? Yeah, you, good lord, that's so like a, throwback like a, uniforms. It's like a basketball score. And by the way, basketball. Shout out to the uh, to the Seattle Storm when in yeah. uh, when in their champ. their world championship. That's that's getting into dynasty territory. That's awesome. For sure. I've been a been a big storm for a long since back since my my daughter's favorite player was Lauren Jackson. Yeah, she was tall, so yeah. tall. Yeah, and then congratulations, Sue Bird on, Sue on Bird. four championships. That's they're incredible. getting her set up to be a coach. I think. I think they're gonna eventually when this guy wants to transition out. They're gonna Sue Bird's gonna do the Lenny Wilkins, you uh, know, co- player Nate coach. Thing. Yeah, yeah, she's great. She's terrific. All right, awesome. All right Joel, stay COVID free. You uh, bet. You too, buddy. We'll do. Um, and let's enjoy some Carrie Byer spoken word. You've been listening to The Bystander. Be kind. Hey, Podcast Phil. Want your spoken word to be heard? We are currently seeking submissions for spoken word and poetry. Send your recorded words to tinytim at thebystanderpodcast.com. In the book Threads, poet Nisha Ramaya uses the metaphor of weaving to explain poetry and the theories around it. Weaving as a way to think and write about context, movement, and relationship. Single threads are part of the whole weave of a work. I think this applies to all types of art. As a poet myself, I like to think of this metaphor of weaving, of threads coming together, other people's work intersecting mine. My thread, which I must constantly think about as I write, is a moving body traveling places and times, specific landscapes and cultures, and it includes the shreds of stories that have crossed mine. For me, German culture folds into American. Specific church language, smells, and fabric textures merge. My immigrant mother intertwines with my Kansas farmer father. Hymns follow bluegrass tunes. I change my clothes. I change my hair. I birth a child in a hospital bed. I travel to Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, return home with another child who has another layer of stories. 
I birth a third child in my living room. I move. I change landscapes. We haul furniture from place to place. Stretches of prairie turn to ferns and cedars and the sea. I recall stories told at the dinner table by my mother. Distance creates perspective. I consider the implications of her stories. I consider the implications of the ways I have been woven and the stories I have helped weave. I consider the threads brushing against mine and those I try to brush away and can't. Traditions of women staying close to the kitchen. Traditions of women keeping silence in church, at home, in bed. The moments triggered in my memory become the ground on which I create poems. All of these stories and many more converge into my story. And in the single thread of my life and my life's work, I choose how I will make sense of them, especially when knots build up. Some narratives, some bodies, my mother's for instance, become so closely tied to mine that weaving no longer seems like the only possible analogy for the creative process. I look at the strand and can't tell if it is woven into me or only bound against mine. It's just a mess, a jumble. It looks like our chronic back pain from holding on to stress, and for me, my intense desire to write poems, even though particularly during the pandemic, my family feels right on top of me as we work from home. There's a lot of need for food, for clean dishes, for space. My friend, the local artist Jamie Brower, recently painted a series of works featuring tangled ropes. She told me she wants to make space to validate this object, the rope, to draw attention to its complexity, however ugly or mundane. When I look at her ropes, I envision a single story, a single life. We could leave it alone, resign to life being complicated, unsolvable. Or if we suspect that we may be part of something like the weave Ramaya talks about, another response may be to attempt to untangle the thread so that with perseverance, our thread could be used as part of a different weave, a human story of glory and beauty. As we look more closely at our own story, we may search for the single thread. We may want to unravel, to understand if we are holding something whole or broken. We crave understanding of these narratives. It's part of any artist's work. Rilke says in letters to a young poet, you are so young, so before all beginning, and I want to beg you as much as I can to be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves. So in light of Rilke, I suggest the complication, the tangle itself, could be considered a thing of beauty, the wound glorious, the darkness necessary, even a frayed end, the invisible or dropped story tells a story. We have to study the fray to look. Imagine the rope as an instrument of torture, of hanging. Imagine it coated with your own blood, pus, sweat, urine, or are you reaching? Perhaps that is someone else's story, and you are only appropriating it as your own. Imagine the stench of the rope that may have held you. Did it bind your wrists instead, 
And the reason it may be frayed is because you broke free, slowly, strained year after year against a single point, until, strand by strand, it gave way. Perhaps in breaking free, there was a risk of slitting your own wrists and pushing against the rope. If you took the risk, do your wrists still remember? What did you do when you survived? Whether observing a loose end or a tangle, the artist's job is never to dodge pain, but to enter it with acute awareness. My friend Jamie's art shows how impossible, how complex a tangled story can seem. What do the knots hide? What does the told story not tell? Of what we can see, the pieces of stories, there's always a hidden part, a part unspoken, perhaps more difficult or complex than what has already been seen. We listen for the spaces. We watch carefully to see how the visible rope may turn toward invisibility. We ask questions of what is seen so that we can begin to understand what is unseen. Suddenly, as artists, we are left with the power of choice, with our own hands, with our single strand, or with the knots we've been unable to budge. My strand, perhaps revealing itself as a poem, heads through the larger weave of culture, both through its associative memories, its past, and the present, the way it is communicated to others. However this strand exists, it leads into the intersections of relationships, into the local culture, into my work. My poetry mentor, Matim Shifra, has connected the narratives of movement, loss, and grief as wounds within the body. In her poem, Your Body is War, too, she writes of not one wound, but these, the flowers of 1,000 wounds, within thousands more, so small and so deep, resting comfortably within your walls. As my mentor, Shifra encouraged me to have compassion in looking on difficult material. We want to walk into the work of creating, but we are asked to look mercifully upon our open wounds without judgment. She also taught me that as artists, we must find out how to access the wound, to have a strategy, to handle the painful things. As it becomes tolerable to look at and understand the wound itself with an eye of compassion, we begin to find words for what has happened. We recall a moment with more detail. We understand another section of rope, find a surprising intersection, Perhaps we find stories that have never been named. Is it possible that in seeing them, the frayed end or the jumble, even the brokenness of them, makes them something like our children, which we name and remember and care for? Many of my poems look closely at motherhood, how I understood from my mother what it meant to be a mother, how the story complicates and repeats, and how I, too, have become a mother, an adoptive mother, and what that means for me and my children. This is one of the complex masses I spend time interrogating during my editing process. A mother remembers in some way the violence enacted upon her own body, perhaps through pregnancy, birth, or a difficult attachment with children, or for some, through sexual violence. In writing poems, 
I tell stories, or try to tell stories, that often feel unsafe to tell. I have come to believe that testifying of past wounds, those inflicted upon me and those I have inflicted, is a way of seeing. This becomes my task in writing poems of motherhood, the habit of seeing, looking with intentionality and compassion upon open wounds, the utterly tangled knot, is what releases the power of language to give names. If we want to find revelatory moments, we must not dodge hurt. On the other hand, if we avoid the wound, the language has no power. Speech is stifled. In one of her poems, Aracellus Gourmet writes, The death that cuts me most is the one I never say out loud. Personally, I doubt whether meaningful art can be created without the exposure of wounds. Becoming wounded is a reality of being alive. Lucille Clifton has a beautiful poem, Far Memory, where she says, So knowing what is known, that we carry our baggage in our cupped hands when we burst through the waters of our mother. The more articulately we can look upon that wound and describe its horror, the greater is our potential as artists to reach moments of transcendence and revelation. We cannot guess when these moments will occur. We were only holding a rope and suddenly a poem came into our hands. This practice of looking at darkness, teetering on the edge of despair, has been so present with me during the pandemic. Every week the news shocks us. The threats we hear about impact us personally, our own families. We grapple with the horrors within our society, and these, in a way, magnify the horrors in our own home. For instance, I've had to look how prepared or unprepared I am for conversations about race, examine my own privilege. As a white mother on Bainbridge Island, how ready and willing am I to have conversations with my two white boys, my one black boy, about those things that have wounded and scarred, that are wounding and scarring even now. If we are willing to attend to all of these things, we will be prepared in time to make something of them. Hey there. Band of Steve's here. If you've enjoyed the music on this podcast and you'd like to learn music, get in touch with me. Electric bass, guitar, theory, voice, production, writing. Steve Newton Music at gmail.com.